Hello and welcome to episode number 51 of Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Joining me on this episode is journalist Dan Kennedy. Dan's a professor at Northeastern University's School of Journalism and writes a weekly column on media and politics for the GBH News website. From 1991 through 2005, he worked at the Boston Phoenix, mostly as the Alt Weekly's media columnist. Dan has also contributed articles to a number of other publications, including the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, and Neiman Lab. From 2007 to 2011, he wrote a weekly online column for The Guardian. His book on a new breed of wealthy newspaper owners, The Return of the Moguls, How Jeff Bezos and John Henry Are Remaking Newspapers for the 21st Century, was published in 2018. And from 1998 to just this year, Dan was a regular panelist on Beat the Press, a weekly roundtable program on media issues hosted by Emily Rooney and broadcast on GBH-TV. Most recently, Dan entered the world of podcasting with What Works, a podcast about the future of local news. Dan's collaborator in that effort is former Boston Globe editor Ellen Clegg. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with friends. And now on to my conversation with Dan Kennedy. Hello, Dan Kennedy, and welcome to Making Media Now. Thanks for having me, Michael. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. So, Dan, I feel like I could dive into this conversation from any number of angles. I could, you know, talk about your uh, your your kind of bird's eye view of the media landscape from all your years uh, on as part of the Beat the Press ensemble that that ran on GBH for so long, or from your your purchase a as a uh, a journalist in the greater Boston area, uh, or as a professor at uh, Northeast. Eastern School of Journalism. But I want to begin with something a little bit new. You uh, have recently joined the uh, the world of podcasting. On behalf of the uh, 900 million other podcasters out there, I welcome you to the pool. Remember, on the internet, we'll all be famous to five people. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I've yet to hit that quota. <laughs> <laughs> Ellen Clegg, the retired editorial page editor of the Boston Globe, and I are um, writing a book on the future of local news called What Works. And uh, as sort of a side project to that, we are um, doing a podcast uh, that uh, in which we interview people who are involved in, you know, interest people who are working on policy, people who are involved in interesting local news projects, uh, you name it. We're just really starting to get into it and uh, and, and we're still kind of feeling our way. Uh, but if anybody is interested in checking out what we're doing, uh, just head on over to whatworks.news and uh, they will quickly find themselves uh, taken to the podcast information. 
Yep. And the podcast is also available on all of the uh, podcasting platforms. I, I found it through Apple, but I know it's, it's also available through Spotify. And one of the more recent episodes that I listened to, uh, you were talking uh, with a woman who was kind of uh, giving um, really some fascinating detail about a phenomenon that you have spoken and written about quite a bit, and that is uh, private equity and hedged funds. Uh, buying up news organizations and the um, the hedge fund that that she was speaking of was Alden Global Capital um, and their recent acquisition of a newspaper. And that put me in mind of a book that you wrote back in 2018 called The Return of the Moguls, how Jeff Bezos, John Henry and John Henry are remaking newspapers for the 21st century. What kind of a relationship do you see between the moguls, the 21st century moguls, as you cited them, and this move uh, within private equity and hedge funds uh, scooping up um, media interests? Well, uh, first of all, I should say that uh, Alden Global Capital is widely considered to be the worst newspaper owner on the planet. And I feel like I've either been following them or they've been following me uh, for about the past dozen years because uh, when I was reporting in New Haven, uh, they were on the scene gobbling up the New Haven Register. Um, in the Moguls book that you mentioned, uh, they ended up buying the Orange County Register. And uh, and it really just goes on and on. And Julie Reynolds is really the gold standard when it comes to reporting on all the global capital. She's broken a number of incredibly important stories about them. Now, you asked me specifically about um, the relationship between hedge fund ownership and ownership by individual wealthy owners such as Jeff Bezos and John Henry. And I we could add to the Washington Post and John Henry uh, with the with the Boston Globe. And to that, you could add Patrick Soon Shang, the owner of the Los Angeles Times, who was a billionaire uh, surgeon. Well, I would say that we're really talking about polar opposites here because the few billionaires who have stepped up to the plate and purchased major newspapers um, have really done so for good and altruistic reasons. Uh, you could imagine some bad reasons that a billionaire might buy a newspaper. And uh, so far, fortunately, we've been spared that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, But Alden Global Capital... Um, would seem to have one interest and one interest only. And that is in uh, squeezing out the last remaining revenues uh, from the newspapers that they acquire and, uh, you know, using them to enrich their owners, uh, the the head of which is uh, Randall Smith and Heath Freeman. Uh, Randall Smith again, in a story broken by Julie Reynolds a few years ago, uh, has purchased, I think it's 17 mansions in Palm Beach, Florida, uh, for $56 million, uh, much of which we may assume he extracted from the newspapers that he bought. Uh, So that type of ownership is really the worst possible fate that can befall a newspaper. And 
I think individual billionaire owners, uh, as long as they're doing it for the right reasons, uh, are frankly the best possible fate. Do you see in in the case of the um, Alden Global Capitals of the world, are they is their interest purely financial? Are they seeing an economic opportunity in buying these newspapers? Do they come in with any type of an ideological agenda? Alden Global Capital seems to be interested in nothing but the revenues that they can extract from the newspapers they buy. And, you know, they've bought they bought a chain of pharmacies a few years ago and gutted them and walked away. I mean, they really don't care. Um, in that sense, I would con- contrast them with uh, Gannett, mm-hmm. which is the largest newspaper chain in the country, and also no day at the beach. Um, they have uh, gone about cutting their newsrooms with uh, almost as much uh, ruthless efficiency as Alden Global Capital. The difference is Gannett really is a newspaper company. And uh, I think that the executives who run Gannett believe that they are groping their way to the future. They are hoping that at some point they can uh, attain stability mm-hmm. and maybe do a better job with their newspapers than they're doing today. Uh, whereas I don't think Alden cares at all. Now, you bring up the matter of um, rich owners using their newspapers for political influence. Right. Uh, I'm not aware of a single newspaper chain in the country that really has any interest in that. Uh, not Alden, not um, Gannett or Hearst or McClatchy or anybody else. Uh, they run them as businesses. Uh, Some are running them into the ground. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some are trying to uh, do a little bit better job than that. I think Hearst is probably the best of the bunch. Uh, But they really um, have shown very little sign of um, wanting to use their newspapers to throw their weight around politically. To anticipate your next question, maybe you want to get into this, but I haven't really seen the uh, individual billionaire owners doing any of this either, mm-hmm. uh, with one exception. But we Wouldn't can we be? can talk about that if you'd like, Mr. Murdoch. Um, <laughs> no, well, okay, Murdoch would be um, Murdoch would be a, a good example of that. I, I agree with you there. I wasn't thinking of him simply because he's not one of this new class of billionaire. He's been doing it for so long. (laughs) He's been doing it since uh, um, um, at least the past hundred years, it seems. Um, The exception I would point to is, um, and he passed away recently, but Sheldon Adelson, the casino mogul who bought the Las Vegas Review Journal Um, a few years ago. And it was a truly bizarre story. He bought it secretly. Um, The staff of the Review Journal um, put their investigative reporting lens onto that question. And they're the ones who exposed that it was Sheldon Adelson who uh, had bought the paper. And in one of his first acts, he um, had this lengthy screed attacking a judge who had gotten crosswise with him uh, published. Uh, 
not in the Las Vegas Review Journal, but in three newspapers in Connecticut that were um, owned by. Oh God, you know, I, I'm I'm already losing the thread because it's such a bizarre story. But they were these were three newspapers in Connecticut owned by somebody he had brought in to help him run the Las Vegas paper. It's the craziest thing you've ever seen in your life. And his uh, investigative <clears throat> journalism te- journalists out of the newspaper that he owns discover this. Um, no, actually, the um, oh, it was the newspapers that he owned that discovered that he was the owner. Sure, it's like uh, it's like those horror movies where they tell you the uh, the um, the the killers in the house. Yes, absolutely. But you know, I have to say that in almost every instance that you can think of, including the Las Vegas Review Journal. Um, a billionaire owner tends to be a better fate than being gobbled up by a hedge fund or a corporate chain owner, uh, because other than other than the owner's um, odd political predilections, mm-hmm. um, Adelson put some money into the paper, and uh, it's probably doing a better job of covering the community than it would have been if it had been bought by a hedge fund. You know, I feel like for at least the last 20 years, you're always hearing about the demise of print journalism and how, you know, newspapers are on life support. But that would seem to run counter to them being uh, attractive targets um, economically, financially, uh, you know, for the hedge funds of the world and for the, you know, the uh, private billionaire owners. Well, okay, you're talking about two completely different questions there, okay. and I'll de- I'll deal with the billionaire owners first. Um, John Henry and Jeff Bezos and Patrick Soon Shong bought their newspapers for a shockingly low price. Um, John Henry actually got the Globe for for nothing when you figured the real estate into it. Uh, then he had to turn around and invest many millions of dollars getting the globe back up on its feet financially. And it was only within the past couple of years that the globe reported that it was profitable once again. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I would say that it appears to still be profitable, although they made that announcement just before the pandemic. So who knows? Um, The post claims to be profitable, although like the globe, it's, it's privately held, but they are not trying to run those papers to further enrich their owners. The, the, whatever small profits they earn are invested right back into the product. As I said, they're really doing this for the best possible reasons. Now you get to what Alden global capital is doing. Um, completely different situation. And the way I would describe it is that no matter how unhealthy a newspaper might be, it's still throwing off cash. It has readers, it has advertisers. And so a company like Alden comes in and says, well, okay, we've got 120 people on the news staff and the paper is losing money. If we cut that to 60, voila, we're making money. 
Right. And uh, and and they and that's something that's very easy to do if you don't care about the journalism that um, that that the paper is um, is producing. So that's what they do. And in a couple of years, if the revenues continue to decline and either the profits aren't looking healthy enough or they start going into a loss again, they say, well, okay, let's cut them again. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's an endless cycle of cutting where you try to keep the expenses below the revenues no matter what even if the result is a newspaper that isn't meeting the information needs of the community, because that's not something they care about. Tell me about the role in the, in the importance that you feel local journalism plays, particularly in a world where it's becoming easier and easier uh, to pretty much curate your own media diet, whether it's through uh, which of the cable news channels you are, are, are going to be gravitating to, whether you get your news from a source such as Facebook um, or or whether you basically just go to one or two websites every day, um, none of which are, uh, feel like they're particularly local, but you have a particular passion for the preservation uh, of local news. So say a little bit about that. Sure. And I do think that truly local news, and I'm talking about even below the regional level, Mm -hmm. uh, I I wouldn't consider the Boston Globe to be a local newspaper. It's a regional newspaper because the Globe can't get in and cover the planning board in your town. It's it's just not part of their mission. Um, And you're not going to curate local news particularly well. Um, I mean, I look at the Facebook groups in the the uh, city that I live in, mm-hmm. uh, Medford, Massachusetts, and um, I learn things from them, but nothing is vetted and you don't really know what's true and what isn't. And you get into these awful uh, arguments with, with people. I, not me, of course, I'm just <laughs> I'm just the the soul of a good temper here. Um, But you really need a a vetted news source for your community so that you know what's what's reliable. Uh, I'll give you some examples. There have been academic studies that show that communities that do not have a reliable source of local news um, have a lower level of voter participation. Uh, They have fewer people running for local office Mm -hmm. uh, because you you don't have that informational source in the community that brings people together. Um, There have been there's uh, there was a study done a few years ago that showed that uh, communities that had um, no reliable source of local news would have to pay a slightly higher interest rate if they borrowed money to, you know, build a new fire station or a new school or, or something like that. It would seem that the investors that they borrow money from were building in something of a corruption tax. Interesting. Um, and uh, I would also argue that um, local news is a at least a partial solution to the terrible polarization that we are experiencing in the country right now, right. Uh, because um, 
these sorts of issues that communities have to deal with every day are not the kinds of things that degenerate into partisan warfare necessarily. Are the potholes getting filled? Is anything going to be built on that vacant lot? Uh, Are the schools doing a good job? Uh, Unfortunately, what we're starting to see is the nationalization of even some of these local issues with schools in particular uh, under siege over masking policies and critical race theory, which they don't even teach. Um, uh, And I do think that reliable local news can be an antidote to that. Uh, My fear, unfortunately, is that the public is now so accustomed to tapping into national sources of local news of of news that their their natural instinct is to apply that to what's going on at the local level and um, nationalizing everything, which I think is really unfortunate. Yeah, but I do a, think that. But that, I that's an excellent say, point. Do, that's an excellent you know, point because it, it it's off it's often pointed out that um, that local government is a whole lot better at actually solving a lot of problems that directly impact uh, citizens' lives than either state or national government is. And if the citizens aren't aware of that process and they aren't aware of the outcome, and by extension, their awareness would would allow them to see that, oh, that problem got solved and everybody didn't have to retreat to their political camps. To a degree, if you're in the business of creating agitation uh, through the uh, the news that you present, that's actually a story you don't want to tell. No, because that's it right. undermines your narrative. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. You know, there was a great story a number of years ago about um, Roger Ailes, the founder of Fox News, buying a community newspaper in a the fairly small town in uh, New York where he lived and turning it into um, a uh, a source of agitation and just another outlet for the culture wars that Fox News reported every day. Well, that's not what the vast majority of local news organizations are doing. Um, I was I actually spent election night uh, in New Haven. Uh, I brought a couple of graduate students with me and we observed the way the New Haven Independent um, was covering the city election. Uh, The New Haven Independent is a nonprofit online only news source and they just had volunteers at all i think it was 37 polling stations around the city and in neighboring hamden calling in results they were posting them as fast as they got up uh and then they have a community radio station wnhh uh and they were broadcasting about the election returns for two hours And this is how you connect with the community on a purely local level. And we're just not seeing nearly enough of that. 
And that's the the election that you're speaking of or the one that just took place is the one that took place last night. I'm talking to you on November 3rd and you're speaking about the uh, the uh, election that took place November 2nd. So, Dan, you have been in and around the the media world, the journalism world for quite some time. And I'm curious, um, tell me a little bit about your background and what inspired you to pursue a career in uh, journalism. Well, uh, what inspired me to to pursue a career in journalism was that when I was in the eighth grade, I had always thought I was going to be an astronomer. And then somewhere around the seventh or eighth grade, it began to dawn on me that it uh, that it involved a lot of math. Um, So uh, so so that was the end of that. Um, You could have gone into astrology, however. There you go. But I always I always loved politics. I like writing and I really wanted to uh, combine the two. And so essentially that's what I did. And um, I worked for 10 years at the beginning of my career uh, at the Daily Times Chronicle in Woburn. Uh, And I'm very happy to say that the paper is still owned by the Haggerty family, which founded it a hundred years ago. Wow! And the um, editor of the Daily Times Chronicle, Jim Haggerty, um, still going strong at a, at around the age of eighty, uh, just won a big community journalism award from the New England Newspaper and Press Association. So, so good for him. Absolutely. Uh, and then I spent the better part of my career at the Boston Phoenix, uh, the late, great Boston Phoenix. Um, Classic alternative weekly. Absolutely. And I spent most of my time there as their media columnist. Uh, And uh, and, and that was was a huge amount of fun. That's how I got to know your work, actually. Okay. Well, thank you. And, you know, I covered what was going on at the Boston Globe and the Boston Herald and the local TV stations. And then the longer I stayed there, um, well, as I got into the later stages of my time at the Phoenix, uh, the Internet came along. And uh, although it began eating away at the revenues that the Phoenix produced, it also uh, gave us a small national audience. So I was able to do some some coverage of national issues as well. And uh, I have been at Northeastern since 2005. And during that time, I've also worked as a columnist for The Guardian and uh, a media writer for Commonwealth Magazine. Mm-hmm. And then in more recent years, as a columnist for GBH News. And as you mentioned, I was a uh, panelist mm-hmm. on Beat the Press Um for 22 years. For 22 uh, it's years. In, That's quite a it, run. It's entire run. And uh, unfortunately, that came to an end uh, fairly recently. But it right. was um, it was uh, it was it was a terrific thing. I miss it. Tell me about how the uh, student profile uh, of, of, of the 
the students that you're teaching at Northeastern School of Journalism has changed. Um, and I asked the question because I can't imagine that anybody is going to journalism school without a keen awareness of the hill they have to climb. Um, just in terms of, well, let's be honest, in terms of compensation, in terms of um, the the way that the media is such a convenient pinata for, you know, whichever political party wants to claim that it's um, biased and untrustworthy, et cetera. So it where who are their role models? What's inspiring them and how do they combat what seems to be a really easy sense of cynicism uh, around the whole practice of journalism? That's a very encompassing question there, Michael, and I'll, I'll take try to time. take on, I'll <laughs> try to take on a little bit of it. The first thing I would say is that today, just like 30 years ago, when I was going to journalism school, uh, most students who are working toward journalism degrees will probably end up working in uh, a communications related field. Okay. Uh, public relations, nonprofit advocacy, uh, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a minority of students who do go into actual journalism jobs. Um, our students today are just absolutely brilliant. Um, and uh, I, I'm just filled with admiration for them. And the ones who really have a passion uh for journalism, seem to find a way to do it. And uh, a number of them are at traditional newspaper jobs, I have to say. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of our young recent graduates are at top organizations like uh, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, uh, Politico, BuzzFeed. Uh, And some of them are at much smaller organizations and loving it. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is terrific. Uh, you mentioned the compensation. I do think that that has become a significant problem uh, because when I graduated from journalism school, I think my first job was at um, close to minimum wage, uh, but I was able to graduate from college with no debt. Right. You can't do that today. The, right. Our students are graduating with a lot of debt. And uh, we also know that the gap between the 1% and the rest of us uh, just keeps growing so that the the uh, income that they are making can't be stretched as far as it as it could 20 or 30 years ago. And so these are real problems. And and I'm not really sure uh, what to do about it other than you know, frankly, hope for systemic changes to the economy uh, at the national level. Well, and, speaking uh, of, of the national level, right before you and I started chatting, um, I happened to see something that you tweeted uh, just about an hour or so ago, referencing a, uh, a federal bill to help local news organizations. Uh, looks like it may be encountering some type of an opposition. Can you can you give me a little insight on what the bill is about and what its fate might be? Sure. This is called the Local Journalism Sustainability Act. And um, it would provide uh, a series of tax credits for five years. And the idea of it is to give 
local news organizations a little bit of runway to finally figure out their way to sustainability in the digital era. It's hard not to be a little bit cynical about that. They've had 25 years, but this would give them another five years. And I I think it's worthy. Um, Probably the best known provision of this bill uh, would allow um, people, you and me, to write off up to $250 a year uh, on our taxes in subscriptions to local news uh, organizations. And then there are also some tax credits for publishers and for advertisers. And we don't like the government getting involved in journalism, but this seems like it's indirect enough that we wouldn't really have to be concerned about the independence of, of local news if this were to pass. Now, this bill has gotten quite a bit of bipartisan support. Mm-hmm. Bipartisan, believe it or not. Um, saying something. That's saying something. I think that politicians of both parties like to have a uh, uh, the local news organization back home uh, running their picture uh, <laughs> as much as possible. Uh, unfortunately, the bill became um, part of the reconciliation bill. Um, and as the House and the Senate keep wrangling to try to figure out how to come up with something uh, that will pass with all 50 uh, Democrats in the Senate, um, given the ongoing uh, obstructionism, frankly, of uh, Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, um, this ended up getting dropped. Now, if the reconciliation bill ends up passing, which I think any sentient being at this point would have their doubts about. Uh, But if it does, and the uh, Local Journalism Sustainability Act is not in it, uh, given the fact that there is bipartisan support for it, it's possible that they could come back and and pass it separately. Yeah, Uh, resurrected on its own. Resurrected on its own. But who knows? Who knows? Mm -hmm. And I also have a little bit of a problem with the bill in that it would help the corporate chain owners just as much as it would help the um, local independent owners. But I think it's probably at this point a risk worth taking, especially if they hold it to that five-year timeline. Mm-hmm. When you were talking about the your time at the Phoenix and you talked about them, you know, moving uh, to a, a digital platform, um, which introduced a wider audience. I'm curious about your thoughts uh, of what took place post 2016. Uh, you know, you had the Washington Post and the New York Times just report unprecedented increased levels of uh, subscribers, digital subscribers. Uh, pretty much all of the major cable networks, uh, you know, um, their ratings um, really surpassing, you know, what the, the previous four years were. And there were also many instances, and I'm going to point mostly to, well, I can point to the Times, the the Journal, uh, and the Post, where it felt to me like the the everyday dogged work of journalists was being extolled or, or at least made known in a way that 
you know, I, I really couldn't think of a time, you know, prior to Woodward and Bernstein. And, you know, I was like in third grade or something at the time that was taking place. Um, what, what what do you think? I mean, aside from seemingly a reaction to Trump and Trumpism during that period of time, um, how do you feel that trend bodes uh, for the media overall, and do you see any correlation between, you know, that type of increased engagement uh, with readers and that trickling down to the, to the local level that you're so concerned about? Um, it is not trickled down to the local level. Okay. Um, that's the problem. Uh, this is a sign of the nationalization of the culture that I was talking about earlier. Okay. Uh, people became, and, and Trump had a lot to do with it. Uh, people became intensely interested in national news and, um, the, the news outlets that you mentioned were all rewarded for, right. for that. Um, and, uh, you know, frankly, the, Times in the Post probably went a little bit overboard in their Trump coverage in order to uh, satisfy that growing subscriber base. Mm -hmm. Um, It didn't happen at the local level. And one of the reasons it didn't happen at the local level is because um, it wasn't national. It wasn't Trump, Trump, Trump all the time. Um, Now, some of the in-between news organizations benefited as well. And one of them was the Boston Globe. They their digital subscription base uh, started to grow tremendously during this time. And um, I was uh, at a talk that Brian McGrory, the editor of the Globe, gave a few years ago, and he was explaining that the Globe has maintained a fairly robust Washington bureau mm-hmm. and was throwing Trump stories onto its homepage every day uh, because they determined that it drove subscriptions. Right. And the subscription money that they were getting from um, some Trump-obsessed drive-by readers, uh, well, they weren't drive-by if they were signing up to subscriptions, so I shouldn't say that. Uh, But uh, it was really the Trump coverage that was enabling them to pay for the really important regional coverage that they do. Do you think that this tension, I guess, between the new side and the business side of of journalism, be it national or local, is something that has always existed and we're just kind of wrestling with the with the most recent manifestation of it? Or do you think that the advent of social media where people can say like in in a in the Facebook realm it's seeming it's seemingly the case that a lot of people can no longer tell the difference between um, opinion and news do you do you think that tension has always existed and or has it been exacerbated by the role of social media well I think that the business side pressures have always been there and I'm not sure that they're any worse than they they used to be uh, but I think they've changed. Uh, it used to come entirely from advertisers. Um, the uh, I think you would have to say that back in the day, the Globe and the Herald were not exactly known for their tough investigative reporting of Jordan Marsh and Filene's. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I mean, there was always pressure from you don't advertisers. Don't bite the hand that feeds. 
No, I mean, do favors for us. Don't write anything negative about us. On and on and on. And uh, my, I'm old enough, and my career goes back far enough that that I remember those pressures very well at the uh, at some of the places where I worked. Today, um, news organizations are much less dependent on advertising uh, since. So much of the advertising went to Google and Facebook, right. uh, and they have become quite um, exposed to the wishes of their audience, which, after all, are paying the bills in order to read to read what's in the Times and the Post and and the Globe and and everything else. And you do see a lot of this play out, especially on Twitter, where. And especially toward the New York Times, it seems, where any time that the Times publishes something that seems to uh, tilt a little bit toward uh, the Republican point of view, you just see this outraged mass. Yeah, I'm canceling my subscription. (laughs) I'm canceling my subscription. Uh, And, you know, frankly, sometimes I do see some merit to their complaints, although I'm not canceling my subscription. Sure. Uh, but but I think that in an in a perfect world, you would have a balance of revenue sources between advertising and readers. And unfortunately, we've really swung all the way from the advertising side to all the way to the reader side. So it ends up being unbalanced and um, it can be difficult to ignore um what your paying customers are asking for every day. Yeah, you can become hostage to to essentially their emotional need. No, that's right. That's right. And um, I think that, eh, you know, my students detect major bias, a major liberal bias at the times. Yep. And um, I think that that's true to some extent. And I think it's uh, largely because of pressure from their readership. Yeah, I'm 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 particularly of that mindset this afternoon when this morning in The Times I read a uh, I read an opinion piece. A, A woman was considering whether or not certain classic rock songs shouldn't be played anymore because the uh, performer of that song turned out to be a less than perfect human being. Oh, man. You know, I've got a list for her. I've got a long, long list. So do I. I mean, my my two favorite musicians ever are Bob Dylan and Miles Davis. And uh, that's a good thing. We're not we're not talking about nice people. in either these are case. Not choir boys. No. <laughs> well, Dan Kennedy, thank you so much for for making the time to chat with me. You're uh, you know, I feel like I could go on for for quite some time. I want to make sure that people know where to find your work. I know there is the Media Nation uh, blog and website. The new podcast is called What Works. What am I missing? Where should we be pointing people? Well, if you go to my blog, which is at dankennedy.net, Okay. Uh, you'll find links to everything else. All right, terrific. And I'm going to make sure that the links are all in the program notes for this particular episode. Again, thank you so much for your thoughts, for your insight. It's uh, really appreciated. This has been fun. Well, thank you, Michael. I had fun too. So I uh, hope it was a good conversation. I appreciate it. Sure was.